The following is brought to you by the generous support of Clio. Why would anyone confess to a crime they didn't commit? It happens, and when it does, it has terrifying consequences. People confess all the time to a wide variety of offenses they didn't do, including the most terrible in our society. Murder, rape, assault, robbery. And it might surprise you that we're not talking about people who have psychological conditions. These are regular, everyday people who get caught up in our criminal justice system and pay an enormous cost for crimes they did not commit. But what would make an innocent person confess? Given the extremely severe prison terms for offenses like these, including life in prison or even the death penalty, it seems unthinkable that a logical human being would knowingly tell law enforcement and prosecutors they did something horrible when they didn't. It is unthinkable, and yet it happens. But why? My name is Michael Samanchik. I'm the managing attorney for the California Innocence Project, and you're about to hear false confessions. Spend most of my life in prison Chasing a dream called justice Chasing a dream, chasing a dream Won't somebody please hear my plea Won't somebody please set me free False confession cases are especially difficult, with very low odds of freeing the innocent. Like other causes of wrongful conviction, they can take many years to undo. Unfortunately for so many, exoneration is not possible because there's not enough evidence pointing to the guilty party. Maybe that's because the evidence was lost or destroyed. Or maybe it's because the criminal case was weak in the first place, and the only reason the prosecution got that wrongful conviction was because an innocent person falsely confessed to a crime they didn't commit. It might seem ludicrous that someone would knowingly and falsely confess to a crime they didn't commit, but in reality, it can happen to any one of us. Given the right set of circumstances and stressors, we all have triggers that cause us to do things that we would not normally do. Add diminished capacity and inexperience to the mix, and the odds of false confession go way up. In our last episode, we heard from Marty Tankliff. He's a friend of mine who I've come to know doing my work at the California Innocence Project. When Marty was only 17 years old, he was pressured into falsely confessing to the murder of his parents. He was scared, grief-stricken, and confused. When Marty most needed the help of a trusted adult, he was being aggressively interrogated by law enforcement. He was vulnerable and in great danger. Unfortunately, Marty was not able to fend off seasoned investigators looking to make a murder bust. He was lied to, intimidated, and worn down into making a false confession. He was just a minor at the time, but that single misstep would cost him 18 years of his life behind bars. If there's one thing we can learn from his tragic story, it's that once an innocent person goes down the path of false confession, it can take decades to get them out of prison, if they get out at all. And that's why it's so important to learn about false confessions and what causes them. Criminal investigators are trained to trick people into saying things that might be against their self-interest. And that makes sense. After all, most criminals are not just going to snitch on themselves without some sort of pressure. To apply this pressure, law enforcement deploys a variety of techniques during interrogations, including lying to suspects. As we heard earlier in Marty's story, investigators lied to him. They lied to Marty when they said his hair was found in his mother's hands, 
Investigators also lied when they said Marty's dad told police that Marty attacked him. As awful as that sounds, investigators are allowed to do this. Police are allowed to lie to you about what they know, what they can offer you, and perhaps most alarming, what evidence they have. They can simply make up evidence out of thin air to get people to say something that normally they wouldn't. So why is that a problem? After all, the goal is to catch guilty people, right? Well, the answer is these techniques manipulate and exploit weaknesses. Everyone has a vulnerability or weak spot. We all have triggers that exist within us, and if pushed, can cause us to do things against our best interests. And although these investigative techniques certainly work on the guilty, they can also ensnare the innocent. But how do these techniques work? Why do they cause the innocent to falsely confess? I talked with my friend Laura Nyrider. She's a clinical professor of law and co-director of the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. You might remember her from the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer, which was in part about her client, Brendan Dassey, nephew to Stephen Avery, and who was also convicted of the murder of Teresa Halbach. Laura is also the co-host of the Wrongful Convictions podcast. Here's what she had to say. That's the right question to ask, right? This is the question that everybody asks. Why on earth would someone confess to a crime they didn't commit, especially one as brutal as rape or murder? Because we all think we wouldn't do it, right? I wouldn't do that. I would never do that. Maybe if I were being tortured, okay, okay, okay. But of course, in most of these cases, there isn't physical abuse. It's only psychological interrogation techniques. And most of us think we'd be able to see through that, withstand it, right? But here's the thing. Psychological interrogation is designed to turn the world on its head, to make it seem rational, to confess to a crime even if you're innocent, right? To make it seem like it will help you to do that. These techniques are incredibly powerful. They're they're very effective, of course, on on kids and people with intellectual disability, but they are effective on everyone. And the, the annals of false confession cases include so many cases from white-collar workers, college students, honor roll students, regular folk who don't have disabilities, who aren't particularly young or vulnerable, because these tactics are so effective. And here's how they work, right? You bring the suspect into an interrogation room, and you close the door, you isolate the suspect from the outside world, so they're very focused on the officer, or officers in front of the suspect. The beginning half of the interrogation is essentially designed to convince the suspect that you're trapped. We've got you. We've got evidence against you. I don't care how much you tell me you didn't do this. I don't care that you say you're innocent. I don't want to hear that. You're only pissing me off. You're only making it worse for yourself because I have the evidence against you. No one will believe you're innocent. And that may or may not be true as far as whether they have the evidence. Right. In the United States, unlike many, many other countries, police are allowed to lie about the evidence in a case. So they can say things like, hey, I found your DNA at the scene, or I found your fingerprints on the gun, or I got three people in the room next door who just picked you out of a lineup. Even though that could be completely false, they're allowed to do that. Right. So this goes on and on and on. Imagine you're you. You're sitting there. You're going, this guy's not even letting me defend myself, explain that I'm innocent. He's just accusing me. He's telling me somehow my DNA is at the scene. Somehow these witnesses have picked me out. I don't know how this happened. It's a huge mistake. But he doesn't believe me and no one else will. I am trapped. I am screwed. What am I going to do? That moment of hopelessness is the moment that interrogators are trained to look for. Because that's the moment that the second half of interrogation starts. 
where they offer confession as a way out, as a life raft to this person who is drowning in this feeling of hopelessness, right? So it's like, hey, look, here's the thing. There are two kinds of people in this world, they'll say. There's a, somebody who enjoys the act of killing, who, who plans it out, you know, who who's enjoys it, who, who gets a thrill out of it, who's done this before and probably is going to go do it again, right? That's a remorseless person. That's somebody who's not going to cooperate with police, who's not going to tell us about, you know, that they did something wrong. And if that's you, if you're that kind of monster, you know how the system is going to look at you, right? You're going to go down for this. Your life is over. You'll get decades in prison, you know, these kinds of things, if that's who you are. But there's another kind of person in this world, right? There's a regular person, just like you or me, hardworking, stays in school, tries to do things right. But, you know, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone loses their temper. People snap, you know, make errors of judgment. I made a mistake, a big one just the other day. Here's, here's what that was. I owned up to it. I told people about it. They understood I was a good guy just trying to make things right. And, and you know, here I am. Everything's okay right? And that'll be the how it goes for you, too. If you show us remorse, you just tell us what happened. You're just a good guy who snapped, who made a bad decision. We'll be able to help you. People will want to help you figure this out. So who are you? Are you the monster? Or are you just the person who made a mistake? That's how you get a confession. So your only escape is just to be that remorseful good guy. That remorseful good guy who people will want to help, which of course is a lie too, right? Sure. Because after you confess, ain't nobody going to help you, right? We know that right. these these cases, confessions are the most powerful forms of evidence. They send people to prison. You know, they're believed often more than DNA evidence is believed. These are incredibly powerful techniques. They are really, really good at getting true confessions from guilty people. But they are so potent that they're also really good at getting false confessions from innocent people. And police often lie, too, that if you do speak to them, that you'll end up with a better deal. But statistics show otherwise, right? That if you even just speaking to the police, more often than not, you end up with a worse deal down the road than if you would have just kept your mouth shut from the beginning. No question about it, because when you confess, you're, you're handing them the most persuasive piece of evidence against you imaginable. So that just gives them much more leverage down the road when you and, you know, by that time you'll have an attorney, are engaged in, in trying to settle the case, reach a plea bargain, whatever the deal is that they're offering, right? You're not going to get a good deal if, if you're a confessed killer, right? Right. So two takeaways I would say then from this. One, anyone you, me, anybody can falsely confess, and we all need to accept that and understand it. And two, when you are in the room, or if you ever end up in a room with some investigators or detectives or whatever, lawyer up. Lawyer up. Both of those are really, really great takeaways. I mean, that's the thing, right? We, As I said, we all think that I would never do that. But every single one of us has a breaking point. Every single one of us. That's why... You're exactly right. If you end up in the interrogation room, the first thing you do, respectfully and politely, I want a lawyer. Those are the magic words. When you say those, police are supposed to stop the interrogation and get you legal counsel. That's your best protection. That last part is good advice for everyone. It's always a good idea to lawyer up. We all have the right to legal representation in criminal procedures, whether we have money or not. If you still want to cooperate with investigators after the fact to help them solve a crime, you can, but you should do it with a lawyer. 
And that's especially true when you're facing tough allegations from investigators that seem to hold all the cards. And as Laura just said, once you falsely confess, you've given up all of your leverage to make a deal. Bottom line, if you're innocent, don't confess. Regardless of how good the deal sounds or what investigators are offering you, do not confess. The best thing you can do is lawyer up. Politely and respectfully tell law enforcement that you want a lawyer. Those are the magic words. Once you say that, the investigation is supposed to stop. The most important thing to do after that is be quiet. Stop talking. Stop answering questions. Stop providing information. Simply ask for your lawyer and wait for them to arrive. It's okay to let an attorney help you. And make sure they are highly skilled and have a lot of experience practicing in criminal law. If you're accused of a crime you didn't do, picking the right criminal lawyer can save you from a lifetime behind bars. I want to come back to how far investigators are allowed to go. I think discussing specific examples will highlight how motivated law enforcement is to solve crime. They're under a lot of pressure to close their cases. They feel both external pressure from the communities they serve and internal pressure from their superiors at work. I talked with David Thompson about this. He's a certified forensic interviewer as well as partner and president at Wicklander, Zulowski and Associates, an organization that trains law enforcement to do non-confrontational questioning of suspects and witnesses. Here's more about Dave and what he had to say about aggressive methods during interrogation. Sure, yeah. The brief history of me. Um, went to school in Buffalo, New York for psychology and criminal justice and currently in a forensic psychology master's program at Arizona State. And my career experience has really been focused on conducting interviews and investigations in the private sector of theft and fraud and harassment, then spent some time in the public sector, and, and most importantly and most relevant, the last about seven years work for a training organization uh, that focuses on teaching interview and interrogation, uh, non-confrontational methods across the globe. So earlier you talked a little bit about how um, sometimes investigators might use deception in order to get information from an individual. But often there's times where if they just were telling the truth in order to get more information from the person they're interviewing, it could be better. So can you talk about that? Give us examples. Yeah, I, I think on both sides of the fence. So I consulted on a case a few years ago where on the negative side of, of this is investigators actually created, fabricated evidence, a, a picture of somebody's vehicle at a crime scene. The picture was Photoshopped. It wasn't accurate. I believe that the subject was innocent. And by showing false evidence, what that in turn did is cause the subject, of course, to now change their story. And they changed their story, not because their story was actually wrong in the beginning, but it was, well, I don't remember what I did two weeks ago on a Saturday, but if you have a picture of my truck there, I must have been there. And so it, it actually changes the subject's alibi, which now as an investigator, because I used false evidence, which caused them to change their alibi, now I'm investigating their new alibi, which is not even their story. It's not even accurate. And it, and it creates just convoluted evidence and story and it makes it very difficult to corroborate. I specifically wanted to bring that example of the doctored photo up because it plays to the moral core of a good person an innocent person who was under the strain of interrogation and having a difficult time remembering every single detail could begin doubting themselves. Maybe they had too much to drink. Maybe they were taking prescription meds. Maybe they were overly exhausted from work. Regardless of why they can't remember, a good person believes in doing the right thing. They trust the police. They want to help. Maybe the police are right. They have the picture, after all. 
I can't remember all the details, but how would they have that picture if I didn't do it? As the doubt creeps in, that manipulation exploits the good nature of an innocent person, and now they are at risk of confessing to something they didn't do. Everything during an interrogation is under the control of the investigators. The lighting, the uncomfortable chairs, the duration of questioning, the handcuff restraints on the interview table, everything. It's masterfully created theater designed to trick even the most seasoned criminal. The problem is it works even better on law-abiding citizens. Most people are not aware that they can simply leave the police station. After all, they are not in the habit of being questioned by law enforcement. Unless you're under arrest or being detained, you are free to go. And no matter what, you don't have to say a single word to an investigator. David Thompson also had some thoughts about these environmental factors and their impact on innocent people. I think what we've seen in the past, and even still today, something as simple as the room setup, right? Where Now, we got to take, obviously, officer safety and safety of the subject into consideration. But, but in general terms, is the subject, if they're not in a custodial interrogation and they're free to leave, are they actually set up in the room where they're free to leave? Is there somebody standing at the door with their arms crossed, giving the perception they can't walk out the room? Because the perception of custody is custody. So making sure the room is set up so that the subject is free to leave if they actually are. Secondly, some things we've seen in the past is an investigator coming in the room and standing while the subject remains sitting. And it's almost this authoritative approach. First of all, it goes against common sense, right? When you're trying to get somebody to be cooperative and, and be comfortable with you, the last thing you need to do is create this kind of parent-child relationship. So we've also seen two, three investigators all kind of facing the subject at once. And it seems like a you know, we're kind of ganging up, teaming up on somebody, a good cop, bad cop approach. So a lot of what we advocate for is a room setup that's comfortable, not the classic, you know, metal bench projecting out of the wall, a comfortable room. The detective and the subject are in the same type of chair. I'm not going to be in a nice massage chair while my subject's in a metal chair with one uneven leg making sure, you know, lighting, all this stuff we classically see in movies of interrogations, let's, let's do the opposite. So uh, we don't like a desk to be in between us and the subject. We don't like to be close. We, I'm obviously now, or depending what the society looks like, but, you know, we typically like to be four or five feet apart from the subject. So they don't feel like we're invading their space, but we're still able to have a, a personal conversation. Sitting down and leaving the room in a situation where if they are free to leave, they actually feel like that. So I think that's really important. I think it's even more important when, we, when you're interviewing a victim or a witness, you know, interviewing a sexual assault victim in the same room that their suspect might be interrogated in. You know, just, just think about what's the goal of this conversation. We want people to feel comfortable and tell us the truth, so let's make it that way. When investigators are allowed to lie, doctor evidence, and engage in manipulation, it's easy to see how innocent people get tricked into making false confessions. And that risk is bad enough for a healthy, capable adult. But what happens when the target of investigation is someone with mental disabilities or a child? The answer, it gets much, much worse. And that's what we're going to talk about next time on False Confessions, Part 2, when we discuss why parents, despite best intentions, often get their children into trouble during interrogations. We'll also learn how innocent people inadvertently learn secret facts about a crime that only a guilty person would know. When this happens, it completely derails an investigation. Sounds impossible, right? I assure you it's not. In fact, it happens all the time, and we'll hear all about it when we return. 
Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Produced and written by Lawrence Coletti. Audio engineering by Adam Lockwood. Thank you to Clio for their support of the California Innocence Project and the CIP podcast. Special contribution of music and sound elements by real-life exoneree William Michael Dillon. You can find his catalog of work at frameddillon.com. That's framed, D-I-L-L-O-N.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Samanchik, and you've been listening to the California Innocence Project podcast here on Legal Talk Network. Every month, the California Innocence Project receives thousands of handwritten letters from those seeking justice for wrongful convictions. The impact of these injustices can be life-altering, and without the right technology in place, CIP cannot help all those in need. That's why the team relies on Clio's case management software. By logging these letters into Clio, the CIP team can work on hundreds of matters at any given time and investigate these cases all the way through to exoneration. Clio works tirelessly with organizations like CIP to transform the legal experience for all. Visit Clio.com to learn how they support law firms big and small in creating equitable and just outcomes. That's C-L-I-O dot com.